Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is sports dietitian and avid endurance athlete, Stevie Lynn Smith. Stevie Lynn has been working in this field of sports dietetics for quite some time now. She's worked with hundreds of athletes in their pursuit of better performance, better recovery, feeling their bodies, feeling good in their runs, their races, their workouts. And she also worked with Shalane Flanagan last year when Shalane decided to run six marathons in 42 days. Stevie Lynn was there helping monitor her blood work and advising on the best ways to recover between races. So yes, Stevie Lynn knows a thing or two about our topic today, which is how to handle back-to-back races. And the, the, the template for this discussion is handling back-to-back marathons. And we'll talk about the definition of back-to-back Does that mean two days in a row, two weeks in a row, two months in a row, but also just how to handle back-to-back demanding events in general from a recovery standpoint? Is there something that is done differently with how you approach training? Is there maybe a reason you shouldn't do it? Or is there maybe a reason that you should do it? Now, our focus on this conversation is really about the recovery, not necessarily about the training, although we do touch a bit about kind of the training requirements we'd like to see from somebody who's handling uh, two huge events in a short period of time, two or more events, I should say. Um, So if you are specifically trying to train for back-to-back events, that will be something that a coach like me or a member of my team can help you with. But here, I think that you're going to learn a whole bunch from Stevie Lynn's recovery tips, how to how to handle the races that you've already signed up for beyond just the training. Stevie Lynn Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you specifically for reasons that will be revealed shortly. Before we get started and talking about our subject, our topic conversation today, go ahead and tell us about yourself. How did you become a runner, an athlete, and a sports dietitian? Yeah, so it's a very long story that I'll keep short, but I've been an athlete my entire life, um, but I grew up playing team sports. I uh, I guess the way I excelled as an athlete when I was younger was I was a lacrosse goalie. So I hated, I hated running <laughs> and, uh, but when people learned that I'm a lacrosse goalie, I was like, oh, they're like, oh, it all makes sense now. Um, but I played through high school, briefly in college. And then basically after I stopped playing my sophomore year of college, I just like stopped exercising. And then it took me like a semester to wake up and be like, oh my God, this is not you. Like you've always just been active. It's just was ingrained in my life as a kid. Um, so then I started running in 2008 and I could barely run more than a quarter mile at a time. So I was like a run walker. Um, and then in 2009, I signed up for my first road race, which was the marathon. Um, so, you know, things escalated quickly and they just continued to escalate from there. And I did my first full Ironman in 2012. And from 2012 to 2019, I did 10 full Ironmans, uh, many half marathons, a 50 miler, um, I don't know. Basically, I found a community that was like, hey, do you want to do this race? And we're like, sure, why not? Let's <laughs> let's do it. Um, and uh, along with that kind of like learning as an athlete, I was in, as I call it, dietitian school. Um, when I did my first Ironman, I was in my senior year and my clinical rotations. I did them at the same time. And as I started in endurance sports and kind of learned from experimenting and researching on my own because my nutrition program was very clinical based, which I think is super important. I started to use kind of the tools that I learned for my own benefit, <laughs> racing all of those Ironmans and like two Ironmans in one season, etc. And eventually down the line, it turned into side jobs in the endurance space. And then here we are. Uh, 2022. And I never dreamed of being a sports dietitian. I just really wanted to help people. And I love food. And when I took a basic nutrition course, I was like, this is really interesting. It like kind of clicked. And I was like, 
I think I want to do this. But I was like hell bent on being in the hospital setting and like helping patients forever. Um, and while that was very rewarding work, I I love that I get to do what I do now and help help athletes, you know, fuel not just like their performance, but also their overall health is a very important thing for me. And it's amazing, especially as we go up in distance and up in the hours we spend um, in our different respective sports, you know, you can get away with a lot of stuff if you only stay, I don't say only stay, but you know, if you're a 5k, 10k person, you may never learn that you need to fuel in a long run because your your runs may never be that long. When you get up to the half, the full ultras, Ironmans, you know, I was reading a lot of the, the, um, just kind of debriefing from Kona and mm-hmm. the world Ironman championships that just happened. And so many of the elite triathletes there were talking about their nutrition strategies as such an integral make or break for their races. Like either, you know, if their nutrition strategy was not dialed in, they, there's no way they're going to have the day that they wanted to have. And that's, that's because the nutrition aspect is so important to our performance. Oh yeah, absolutely. I even have clients come to me, they're like, well, I can run 15 miles without fueling. And I was like, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. (laughs) So like, yeah, I have run two, two marathons just on water and electrolytes. It can be done. It sucked. <laughs> I would not recommend it to anybody just from a feeling bad standpoint, notwithstanding a performance standpoint, like your body can do a lot of things, not that you should do them. Exactly. Yep. But you're right. People try to sneak by. I see it like minimal fueling. And I was like, no, that's not, there's no award for like eating the least amount to get by in your marathon. Or as I tell people, there's no award for like making the smallest snack ever. Yeah, like you don't get a special medal for finishing your run on water and salt. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, I feel like that really, that kind of segues nicely into our topic today. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should sometimes. Today we're talking about running back-to-back races Kind of like the 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 wedge into this topic is people is running back-to-back marathons. And back-to-back can mean either two marathons in, you know, on two consecutive days. I know some people last year did this when, um, races were rescheduled and Chicago marathon happened on a Sunday and the Boston marathon happened literally the next day. There were people who got on a flight from Chicago, flew to Boston and ran two marathons two days in a row. People who run marathons two week, you know, two back-to-back weekends, or maybe separated by a month. Basically we talk about, you said racing two Ironmans in one season, racing two marathons in a season, but this conversation can also be extrapolated into running half marathons or ultra marathons or just two big endurance events close together. Mm-hmm. When somebody comes to you and says, and we'll we'll use the marathon, I think is our kind of placeholder example, and says to you, I want to run back-to-back marathons. What's the first kind of the line of questioning or the first thoughts that come into your mind when somebody says that? Yeah. So there are a few things, you know, big thing is from the nutrition standpoint. So like if that was a client I was onboarding as a one-on-one client, I would have their full medical history, any past injuries. Okay. What are the injuries? Are, are, is this person riddled with stress factors or like tendonitis or that person who ends each season? Like, Oh, well, it's like not that big of an injury, but like you're ending with a lot of aches and pains. Um, I look at what they've done, like pass for their training load and intensity and duration and kind of get a handle on, okay, where is their durability at? Most of these people would also have like a running coach. So then there's great collaboration, but you know, I've been in endurance sports for, oh my God, over 10 years now. So like, I don't have a coaching certification, but I can kind of like pick out those signs of like, okay, how is their sleep? Do they have a lot of sleep disruptions? Are they getting good sleep? Because that's going to be mission critical in it. Um, Also, of course, like the nutrition standpoint, do they have their fueling down already? They don't. How much time do we have to this? What does their day-to-day look like? Um, I love using blood work in my practice. So like, are you coming to me with a ferritin of two or, and like a B12 deficiency, vitamin D deficiency, like everything screaming, like you know, I do do also functional hormone testing. Like, are your hormones, you know, estrogens, androgens, et cetera, 
all out of balance? How's the cortisol response? You know, so taking kind of like that 30,000 foot view and looking at all of those factors. And also, how are they feeling? Like, how does their body feel? What was the end of their last season? Did they actually take an off season? Or did they just take four days off after their last, um, you know, marathon event? So there's a lot of factors that come into play. And that's not to discourage, like, be a naysayer, be like, I don't believe in you. But for me, um, as an athlete, I forgot to mention, I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis. I was diagnosed in 2019, so it's changed my life as an athlete. So it's even more important to me than before to make sure that health is always coming first. And if I think someone's going to do something that will negatively impact their health at any point in that journey, I will strongly discourage it. Those people might not like what I have to say, but I will always put it out there straight. And I'm sure they could go find someone who would give them the answer that they want, but I'm not willing to sacrifice anyone's health before going into some of those uh, big endeavors, for sure. Yeah, I I cannot emphasize this and kind of like reamplify what you're saying. Just because you can do something in the short term doesn't necessarily make it the right decision for you in the long term. Um, you know, I... I hate to see athletes come to me for, you know, coaching or coaching consults. And basically they did this thing that broke them. They did so much in wherever they were coming from that they basically just broke themselves. Like sometimes literally, sometimes literally with stress fractures, but they were just so burned out. And they say, I don't understand why I feel so bad. And I was like, because you, you raced two marathons and three half marathons in six months. Yeah. And then you didn't take time off. Yeah. yeah, and the mental. And you also weren't taking your easy days easy. Oh yeah, well, that's all. We could have a whole podcast on that. Bring everybody else in. We could have a roundtable <laughs> event session about that. But like, it's also the mental aspect too. People don't understand. Like, of course, I'm not always motivated to get up and do my workouts. I did a 10 kilometer open water swim this summer, and I'm not. I don't have a swimming background. Like, I taught myself how to swim in 2010. And, you know, it was a grind some days, but it's something about, you know, and you can learn this working with the right coach too, is like, okay, what if this is just like that normal, like it's dark out and I don't want to get out of bed and leave my dog to go to the pool? Or are we teetering towards burnout? And like one of those early signs and symptoms of overtraining syndrome is that mental fatigue. And that's where like that off season is so important to do that mental reset for athletes. And Everybody, I see a lot of people with that, like, I got to be tough, you know, mentality. And yeah, there is an amount of toughness in it, but it's learning like, okay, when to push and when to, when to pull back too. What would you say if you were to describe the profile of an athlete who would be a good candidate for running two marathons relatively close together, what would that athlete profile look like? And what would the recommended time between those two races be? That's a good one. Um, yeah. So I would say I wouldn't encourage this to be somebody's like first or second or third marathon. You know, I would. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This. Yeah. I would like them to have a few under their belts. You know, I'm not going to say like an exact number, but I would say like at least five would probably be a good, uh, good starting point. At least five marathons. Everybody's like, oh, a marathon must be a walk in the park versus an Ironman. I was like, no. Marathons are hard in their like own special way. They're two different things in my brain after doing many of them. Um, so at least some experience with that. Um, they have to show me from a nutrition standpoint that they have their fueling down. And I know some people need help. There's nothing wrong with needing help. But like if you come to me and you're like, yeah, I only drink water and electrolyte or salt for those marathons, I would say unless you're willing to really buckle down, depending on the time period. I would at least like to have like a pretty decent fueling plan where we're getting close to like 60 grams of carb per hour and we're not afraid of sports drink and business feedings as I call them, like eating when we're not hungry, kind of having those foundational habits pretty good down. Um, Also with um, just kind of going off the last point, like did you actually take an off season? Like it all would depend where they're, you know, when they're coming to like myself or you, um, and also looking at like, is strength training part of your routine? Is mobility part of the routine? Looking for those foundational, like slightly less glamorous sleep, et cetera. Um, so if they, I feel like they have like 
a pretty good foundation with that and that durability of some past marathons, some training cycles, the openness to learn like what works well for them, what didn't work well for them, and really that mindset to be open-minded and kind of look to their coach who can see all of their their feedback from that big kind of expert eye view um, and go from there. Because I don't think I did my – when did I do my first double Ironman season? I think it was 2017. Yeah, so I had done five years' worth of Ironmans at that point. So I had kind of like a pretty good – I knew what was in store for me, basically. <laughs> and how many weeks did you have between those two races? Um, let's see. I think both of them were eight weeks, right around eight weeks between races. Which is a significant, I mean, and that's still considered back-to-back. Yes, 100%. Yeah. yeah, and that was like a big thing. I had a coach at the time, and we used blood work just to look and see, like, okay, after Ironman Lake Placid, what happened to my body? And then be like, okay, two weeks, two weeks completely off. And then it was like a few weeks of like pretty easy, low intensity stuff. And then we got a little bit more work in and then just tapered back down. So it was not like what a lot of people would have done. They'd be like, all right, one week of recovery. And then I have to get right back to training. No, we looked and saw like, how was the inflammation? How was my muscle recovery? Certain biomarkers related to that. Of course, in addition to like, how are you feeling? (laughs) You also have to go to your full-time job. And that season in particular, that was my PR, the second race that I did in October. I PR in each discipline, 1135, like 40-minute PR right there. And I barely trained in between the two races. Like nothing intense, no super long rides or anything. You don't need to be an elite athlete to want to get the best out of your body. And sometimes that means taking a peek under the hood. Yes, that means taking a look inside your body at your blood work. You hold nothing back as an athlete. And Inside Tracker can provide you with a personalized plan to build your strength, your speed, optimize your recovery, and your health for the long haul, whether you're running back-to-back marathons or you're training for your very first 5K. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. I've personally found Inside Tracker to be an extremely useful tool in figuring out how to get the best performance out of my body, especially catching areas where I do need improvement. Because you know what? We're human, we're not gonna be perfect all the time. And now for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. That's anything offered on insidetracker.com in their store, 20% off. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash running explained. That's insidetracker.com forward slash running explained. Something I have to continually remind athletes is that your race is a wor- is a workout. Yes. <laughs> like your race gives you fitness. Like, like, I think we forget this too. And, you know, for a marathon, I would say the minimum I'd like to see between two marathons is about four weeks. We might be able to make a case for three, but especially if you're going for performance in any capacity, I would like to see enough week separation between those two races. Like you totally can. I know plenty of people who have done relative, like, you know, marathons separated by four weeks or six weeks and done what you did with your Ironman. They've PR'd their second marathon because their first marathon was the ultimate workout. And then they successfully recovered and harnessed that recovery slash big workout. And it slingshotted them into the next marathon, but then they need a big off season after that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, I would laugh and I smiled because my coach is like, yeah, you're going to get a great fitness bump from that first time. <laughs> and I did, and it was great. And then we took more recovery. Yeah. But the off season after that was, um, quite luxurious for sure. And I, I want to emphasize again that, um, especially when, you know, I, I love when people are ambitious and set really, really huge goals for themselves. When I counsel people on running their first marathon, the first time you run a marathon, you're just, you're almost doing it just to see what happens. And I, I know enough people sign up for their first marathon and like immediately, like then they put two on their calendar and, please, like the first time you run your marathon, don't have another one four weeks later. 
you don't know what's going to happen. Did you do that? <laughs> Not four weeks later, but I did a spring, a May marathon and I had an early October marathon on my calendar and I got injured. Which is like, that's almost back to back. Like it technically you could separate those out by enough time, but those are really close together in the grand scheme of training seasons. Yeah. I'll admit my mistakes and I've definitely learned and it did not work out. And I was like, okay, well that's not my thing. I mean, getting injured running is why I became a triathlete, honestly. So here we are. We love the cross training. My body loves it. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about the difference between um, participating in a race and racing a race, because this is a different effort on your body. And also there are some people for whom participating in a marathon to just finish is an extremely hard effort equivalent to somebody else racing the same distance. Do you have any ways to like explain that or conceptualize that with people when they ask about participating versus racing an event? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I usually have to remind people that it's you don't have to race every race you sign up for. You probably shouldn't, especially because I understand like the community aspect, right? There's something so awesome about towing the line, running with friends. Like if it's a local race, love it. But it's about managing your, your expectations and looking at like, okay, what is your actual like overall season goal, right? Do you want to run a fast marathon in the fall, so you probably shouldn't be going ham in all of your races. Um, I typically also, one of the things I encourage people to do, especially if they feel burnout training for a marathon, use a half marathon as a training run. Then it's self-supported. You get a different route. You have people cheering you on. I always loved doing that because it broke up the monotony of um, the training and people are like, oh, but people are going to look at my time and think I'm slow. And I'm like, You're not, are you running to impress other people with your time? Because then we need to, like, reevaluate everything else. Because I think uh, Laura Green, she's been doing all the great reels. She, she did one about, like, no one cares about your time. <laughs> Doesn't matter. So it's just kind of like looking, sitting down, looking at your season with your coach, seeing where you're at. Are you healthy? Are you coming off an injury, et cetera? In setting, like, it's good to have goals, but, like, Making them realistic and knowing that, like, it's okay to not race every race. Like, you can participate, and it's still great, and it's still fun. Self-support. It's supported, too. <laughs> and the same thing with, I mean, especially if you're, you know, depending on how close the two big races that you're trying to run together you may not be capable of racing both of them. Like you might try to, but you might be still carrying a relatively high level of fatigue mm -hmm. where you just cannot push yourself that hard. And so, you know, it really depends on what your goal is and, you know, are you setting yourself self up for success? You know, if somebody came to me and they said, I want to run two marathons a week apart and I'm going to PR on both of them, I would say, okay, either we're, you are a diamond in the rough that we're about to discover or you are going to be really upset <laughs> at the end of all of this. Yeah. And because, because we decided to try to, to do something that is objectively for 99.999% of the population impossible to do. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Not <laughs> all about managing expectations when it comes to that, for sure. And we do. So this is why I said, you know, I'm excited to talk to you specifically because one of the kind of gold standards for people who run multiple marathons is what Shalane Flanagan did last year in running, what is it? Six marathons. Yes. Back to back. Yep. And, and being the absolute boss that she is destroying all of them, but you worked with her during this time. I did. Yeah. I worked with her, um, throughout, you know, getting a baseline at the start of project eclipse, as she called it all the way through, um, what were the world major marathons? So I did that um, as part of my role with Inside Tracker. So I timed out her blood tests when we were testing after the marathons just to kind of be like, okay, how did her body respond to this? What do we need to tweak between all of these marathons that she's doing to make sure that she's recovering to her best of ability? Um, like, do we need to implement like more of a sleep protocol, recovery protocol? Cause of course she had her whole team with her, like her physical therapist as well. And lots of hands helping her to like get in the car and like hydrate right away, refuel right away when she's leaving Chicago to go hop on that plane and run Boston. So we did end up doing, I think, I believe we did five tests. Yep. 
So the first one was after she returned um, back from coaching the Olympics. Because <laughs> that's what she was doing before she started, like, really getting into Project Eclipse mode. So, like, crazy town. So, yeah, so we, we did that. And the, the data was, was super interesting. Of course, I geeked out about it. Um, but what was also interesting is how she said she felt and how that lined up with what her biomarkers were showing. Um, I think that was the most interesting part because she's like after London Berlin, she was like, she was in a, uh, she was not feeling great basically. But after Chicago, Boston, she said she felt amazing. The, the two back-to-back days. So just like those tiny changes that she made in between for her recovery, remarkable. <laughs> And it is the recovery aspect. You take you take somebody like Shalane Flanagan, who's been running at an extraordinarily high level for a couple decades, who is, you mentioned this word durability a couple mm-hmm. times. And to be an elite athlete, to run that kind of mileage and have the kind of career that somebody like her has had, you are genetically gifted in the durability category, which basically means your ability to absorb extraordinarily high levels of training stress and like just bounce back, bounce back, bounce back. And there are things you can do to support that, you know, with your recovery, with good training practices, but some of that's just innate. You either have it or you don't. That's a hundred percent true. 100%. And yes, and, and certain biomarkers that we look at, um, related to muscle breakdown and resiliency, et cetera, we tend to see that quicker bounce back in, highly trained elite athletes. And that's exactly what we saw in Shalane's. Um, particularly like uh, liver enzymes that are also found in the skeletal muscles and creatine kinase, which is a, a pretty solid indicator of muscle breakdown, inflammation. Um, we even saw after some of her, um, I can't remember exactly which ones, we saw like a drop in cortisol. I was like, how did your cortisol drop after running marathons? <laughs> She is less stressed after a marathon. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's it's very interesting, but I think it's a good point that, like, you know, some people are just built differently, and there's nothing wrong with you that you're not built that resilient. It's just, like, working with what you have and making yourself the best athlete with, you know, your genetics, your body. That's, you know, swimming makes me a better runner, so I've been swimming more. And that's that. And I love it. And it's great. So it's leaning into like what you enjoy, but also kind of what works for you and your body. So in terms of the recovery aspect of this, the first kind of the immediate aftermath of a big race is when that acute recovery window is open. And like you, you need to get some stuff into your mouth, into your body pretty immediately before that window slams shut. And you're already behind the eight ball in terms of delaying your recovery. Mm-hmm. So if somebody just, I mean, in general, good practices for recovering from any huge event, whether you're planning on doing another one in a couple of weeks or the next day or not, what should we be doing immediately after our big race, I'm talking like cross the finish line. What should we do to kickstart a recovery? Yeah. Protein, carbs, fluids, soon as you can. I know it's really, really hard at some of the races as to like what the offerings are. I mean, I always pack my scratch recovery drink. I'm also laughing because when I finished my 10 K swim, my friend had my recovery drink, like in the bottle ready for me to go. Like as soon as I finished, cause I, ran an 18 mile race the next day. So like, boom, I don't care if you're not hungry. I don't care if you're nauseous. That's where liquid nutrition is your friend. That's why I always have those recovery drinks on hand because liquid nutrition is going to be the easiest for you to get down for your body to start digesting, absorbing and starting that recovery product process. And you're also probably a little bit dehydrated because you, you might nauseous because you're slightly dehydrated. I said my sentence backwards. This is kind of weak it is. But so then when you have something like one of those recovery drinks, whatever brand tickles your fancy, you're starting that rehydration. And then it's just if you're doing um, like back-to-back events or want to like really nail your recovery, it's a meal as soon as you can, right? Or if meals seem, seem too large, small snacks, just starting to like get back on that frequency and replenishing those carbohydrates, protein, rehydrating. That's going to look a little bit different for everybody as to like what you can tolerate. 
but none of this, I'm not hungry, so I'm not eating for three hours thing. That doesn't, that doesn't fly. Business feedings, as I call them. <laughs> They're not fun. I love that. Business feedings. Eat like it's your job. Exactly. Yep. And rehydrate, yes. please. Electrolytes. <laughs> and that, I mean, it, it almost is that simple. Like as long as you are adequately refueling, rehydrating your body, that is the bulk of the recovery process. Kind of whatever comes next, just keep doing that. Yep. And whether you're racing the next day or the next weekend, even a couple weeks later, like the recovery is how you get you the most out of yourself in between those two events. Yeah. I mean, that, that swim run weekend I had, I was eating like 800 to a thousand grams of carbs each of those days. Wasn't pretty, didn't love it, but like it, it got the job done, won the 18 mile race, like had a great swim. I know. And it was great. And then I'm just like another point on the recovery too afterwards is that people automatically think like, Oh my God. Okay. It's Monday after my marathon. I'm not going to exercise for hopefully at least a few days, if not a week. And they're like, well, now I need to restrict. They're like, oh, I'm not moving. I can't. I can't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Yada, yada, yada. All the excuses. But that's the most important week to really lean in. And usually by a day after, you usually start to have those hunger cues again. I mean, I think after an Ironman, it usually might be like a, a couple days for the hunger to hit, for your body to fully like, recalibrate and be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, but your body needs energy to repair and recover heal. So it's like, no, no on the restriction of anything that week. If you're not hungry, still trying to eat something small, like every two to three hours. So you're giving your body the nutrients to it needs for that recovery process. That's a big, big one. Same with rest days, same with like your taper, you know, people always want to eat less, but it's definitely not the time um, to hold back. I just ran a marathon and it's that, and I, I, first of all, I have to say that this was really the first training cycle where this past year, I mean, I've done a lot of work on my nutrition, working with a dietitian, and I, my recovery has never been better, but even then, you know, I'm, I'm still excited. I'm a couple of days out and yesterday you know, eating all the, okay. I will say the one thing I was very excited to be able to eat more of again, are was more color. Like I'm like, I can add all of the berries to my oatmeal. I can eat a salad again for lunch. You know, that was very exciting to me to add that back in. But you know, yesterday I had my, my sandwich and Mm -hmm. my fruit on the side and, and, you know, it it was a substantial lunch for me. And then like 90 minutes later, I was like, I'm hungry again. Uh Uh-oh. And I was like, no, no, Elizabeth, you're recovering. Yep. And I had a bowl of cereal, you know, like it's okay. Um, that's just a normal in your hunger, you should eat. It's especially if you've just run a marathon. Exactly. And you're craving vegetables. (laughs) That's how I tell people, that's how I know you carb loaded appropriately. Like everyone's like, carb load's so fun. I was like, you obviously haven't done a real carb load (laughs) because it's it's not. You should cross that finish line and be like, once I feel better, I want a salad. <laughs> That's uh, the, one of the first things I did. So I did. So and it car- I actually wanted to ask you about, uh, about carb mm-hmm. loading um, for back to back races. And I'm sure your answer is going to be yes, do it. You said you were eating 800 to 1000 grams of carbohydrate. Uh, I carb loaded with 700 grams of carbs for three days mm-hmm. leading up to the marathon. It was not fun. It was a struggle to get that many relatively bland, easily digestible carbohydrates into my body. And like, but it worked. I mean, yeah. it was very effective. Um, and that's such a key part of recovery as well as, you know, replacing carbohydrates and replenishing those glycogen stores. The first thing I ate after I, I ran the marathon, I went back to the hotel and ordered room service and I ordered steak tartare and a Caesar salad with extra anchovies and a giant side of bread. I love it. <laughs> It's like all the things I couldn't eat. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> bring it on. on. Bring it on. <laughs> bring on the raw meat and the and the salad with, you know, fatty dressing. And also, yes, I do need a giant side of carbs. <laughs> yes, still need that giant side of carbs. Very critical. Yeah, all the carbs, for sure. So carb loading, um, such an integral part of not only the performance process, but like you can't, okay, let's say it this way. 
When you deplete your glycogen storage, that is extraordinarily stressful on your body. And one of the things we want to do immediately upon, you know, finishing our race is start replenishing those glycogen stores. Mm-hmm. For somebody who's running back-to-back events, I know say, let's say two days in a row, let's say you, you know, hypothetically Sunday marathon, Monday marathon, Saturday marathon, Sunday marathon. Can you, what do you do carbohydrate wise in between those two events? Yeah. Um, of course, everybody's a little bit different, but um, some of my favorites, of course, recovery drinks starting right out the gate. Um, do you know what I found I really liked between my swim and my run? I found, because uh, I had to drive three hours between the two. I mean, my friends are great. They did all this with me. I found Rice Krispie treats that are literally the size of my forearms, and they're like 70 grams of carbs. And like Rice Krispie treats are like pretty easy to digest. Um, I don't know if it hit like my fat, you know, typically I tell people like under 10 grams of fat for like whatever thing, but it worked great for me. I love that. Um, pretzels are always a good one because you're going to get some salt with it as well. Um, any sort of like, I did do like a little peanut butter and jelly just to get a little bit of protein, like that day in between races, like getting a little bit of protein to help with that recovery. Of course, not steak tartare. But, like, even if it's, like, some, like, bland chicken with some pasta for lunch, um, liquid nutrition, liquid nutrition, liquid nutrition, orange juice. I love – I actually drink orange juice every day. But, like, in a carb load, I mean, you get, like, 26 grams of carb for 8 ounces. So you – who only pours 8 ounces of orange juice, right? You can get a lot of bang with your buck. And Starbucks has those little orange juice drinks, too, like, if you're on the road. Like, their orange juice drinks and the Rice Krispies are some of my go-tos as well. Um, you know, dates are always a good one. Obviously don't go too hard on it. Graham crackers, bagels. It's really, to me, a successful carb load is mixing in some of that liquid, but also just frequently eating. And then I would usually cut it off around 530 the night before, just so I make sure I have enough time to digest, wake up, eat my pre-race breakfast. Like, especially in Ironman, I would be eating my pre-race breakfast at 330 in the morning. So, like, you don't want to be eating too late. So then you wake up and you're like, oh, I feel too sick. I can't eat. Like, it's not – it's going to be a sad bagel is what I call it as part of my pre-race breakfast because I'm not hungry. You're just kind of sitting there like, oh, God, I have to eat this bagel. Just put it in your mouth. Chew and swallow. Oh, sports drink. Yeah, I forgot about sports drink. Sports drink is also a great easy carb load option and plus electrolytes. We love electrolytes around here too. So then theoretically, if somebody had a, a good, like the luxury of time, at least a week between races, you would want them to re fully recarb load ahead of their second race. Yes. A hundred percent. If it's depending on like if we're doing a three day or a two day carb load and obviously those couple days, not in the two or three day carb load, you know, not testing the water, like with anything that might get your stomach sick or, you know. Don't go out to eat meat muscles or, you know what I mean? Like anything that could potentially throw your stomach off, keep it like pretty safe into foods that you know you can tolerate. Um, Nothing like add in some fruits and vegetables, but like probably no crazy like kale salad, like nothing too roughage-y in the in-between of the carb loads. And then, of course, if you have four weeks or more, you're basically going back to your, you have a recovery nutrition, and then you're probably going back to talk about the athlete's plates a lot on this podcast. Yep. You're probably going back to moderate to hard days yes. for most of the days then remaining in your, in your recovery cycle, kind of reintroduce a little bit of training until you taper again, and then you recarb load, just rinse and repeat. Yep. A hundred percent for sure. And then just depending how the person felt after the race might increase a little bit more earlier depending on how their body is responding um but yeah that's basically like the general process i'm just curious in your perspective because we talked about when you did the back-to-back ironmans i talked about you know if you have at least four weeks between those two big races that's ideal and that you really do need to take a couple weeks to recover and depending on how much time you have you kind of just then taper again you don't you cannot return to, and I've seen people do this. They're like, oh, I'll just take a week off and then I'll just return to peak weeks of my training. And I'm like, you can't do that. You need less than yes. that. You've already just done this giant thing. You've, you've trained the whole training cycle. You raced your giant, giant race. You don't then need to return to your 65 mile week 
before you taper for your next race. It actually might be detrimental Mm -hmm. to reintroduce that much training in between the two events that you're trying to do. Yeah, 100% for sure. And it's just kind of that mental thing too. A lot of people are pretty mentally tough that they will push through those first signs of under recovery. And that's where having a coach is great. Because usually the coach can be like, no, 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 no. We're going to pull it back. And they can see that signs of under recovery before most athletes will recognize it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Which is why I take my athletes. No, I'm very uh, um, aggressive on our recovery. I would so much rather be a little over recovered than under recovered. Yes. That's just like my thing. I under promise over deliver when it comes to racing. Always better to show up slightly under trained to a race than over train 100%. I think I saw actually somebody posted that they raced Kona with COVID. They got COVID in Kona and they raced and I was like, oh, it hurts me. It hurts me inside. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyways, Ow. that could be a That's whole nother be a long recovery. That could be a whole nother topic. So I won't get on that tangent there, but yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Like, and it's just like off season. You're not, I mean, you should lose fitness. You're not supposed to be at peak fitness all year round. That's not healthy. You know, like it's just. Let's just keep cramming it into people's heads, that concept. <laughs> yeah, I would say if, if your peak fitness was your fitness year-round, it would be your base fitness. Right. Like, you know, so if you want that to be your new base fitness, that's fine. But then you have a new peak to reach for. Like, I think this is really hard, especially when people get that racing bug and they're signed up for a whole bunch of races back-to-back and they don't understand why they can't PR at a half marathon every four weeks. Yep. Like that's just not you with every, with every peak comes a valley and you might be able to string some PRs together a couple months in a row. It's not to say that you can't do that, but like your body works in these big cycles and you need to give your body time to build up and then recover from Mm -hmm. these big cycles that are going to get your peak performance from you. Yep. Absolutely. 100%. Be kind to your body. It's doing great things. You're asking a lot of it because I know probably everybody who listens to this has at least one job, if not two, family, community, all other responsibilities, and stress is stress. So while we might use running as a stress reliever, it it brings us joy, it's still physical stress on your body. And it's just something that, like, not to do, not to not do it, but, like, you have to be aware of how it can, you know, kind of impact your body negatively if we're pushing it too far. So let's say somebody wants to follow the Shalane Flanagan multiple race pathway and do blood work, right? Uh-huh. Um, I, obviously, you know, I, I'm sure it was a, a real treat for you to look at behind the scenes, the blood of a, of a professional athlete and see just like, wow, what's going on underneath the hood is like a sports car versus a, you know, VW rabbit. Um, if somebody is doing blood work and it, so I, and I use inside tracker with, with me personally, like, I think mm-hmm. it's a really helpful tool, but somebody's trying to test certain biomarkers in order to guide this process, maybe just training or training, but you know, between two races, or they just want to know what are the things that you would recommend they look at and how might they understand what those mean? If they're high, low, you know, the moderate range, you know, what are we looking for? Yeah. So some of the big things looking for are, I know I mentioned liver enzymes, ALT and AST also found in the skeletal muscle and can be indicative of that muscle breakdown. Same with creatine kinase. Um, I also like to look at cortisol, as I mentioned, um, that will increase with physical and emotional stress. Those are probably the biggest ones plus inflammation. And when we're looking about how our body is handling training, racing, recovery, and those biomarkers in particular will peak two to three days after the race. And then by seven days after the race, they should start to drop back down. So depending on what the athlete wants to look at, um, that's how like most people I would say would lean towards testing seven days after that big event to see, okay, where am I at? Are these still, so if they're still like super high, that would indicate, okay, we definitely need more recovery. Um, you know, it can be a little bit more helpful when you have more data points to see like how your body responds. Like I've been do- using Inside Tracker since 2016, well before I worked for them. Um, so I have all the data points of like, okay, we would expect ALT, you know, those 
markers to kind of go up during your peak time, but then recover with your recovery. So kind of looking to see how your body responds to different loads and then using that to be like, okay, cortisol is high, but I had high training load, high work stress, wasn't sleeping. So like kind of looking at like cortisol inflammation and seeing like, oh, if your inflammation markers were high and you got injured during that run, there we go. We got to let the injury heal. Or we have to address where the stress is coming from. And usually it's non-glamorous things like meditation or breath work or more, more days off in your training routine because your body can't handle all of the physical and emotional stress you're looking at. So it kind of depends how the athlete wants to use it. But if you're looking for like the back-to-back racing, I would look at seven days after, see where your body's at and help that guide how you're going to handle your recovery and your nutrition between those two events. If you have all the money in the world, you could test like a few days before the event. And if things look really bad, maybe you reconsider doing the event. But I know that's like a super huge luxury that most people can't do. Um, And then like I have some people who test like six weeks out before their A race to see like where's ferritin, so iron, vitamin D, B12, inflammation, and those other muscle recovery markers to say like, okay, we're six weeks out from the race or maybe seven weeks before they go to their peak peak week and see like, what do I need to adjust? Maybe I skip my peak week because like my body's already screaming at me and I add an extra week of recovery or, oh shoot, my ferritin dipped. I'm going to really focus on ferritin because I have six weeks and while you're not going to probably do like a huge jump in your ferritin, you can at least focus on it, build it up going into the race and set yourself up for a better race depending on where those markers fall. I had a, I, I did a, a panel earlier this year after I'd done like a, there's a race near where I live that's famous, a bunch of hills, right? 10 miles, thousand feet, which I know for you ultra runners is like no big deal. But for us road runners, that's a lot, a lot of up, a lot of down, like steep, steep downhills. And it was just in my training and I ran this race and I, you know, ran it hard and I had some pretty significant soreness in my quads from all the eccentric contractions and that downhill running. And I didn't even think about it. And a couple of days later, I got my blood work done and my creatine kinase came back like sky high. Yeah. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh my God. And then I was like, oh, wait, I'm literally still sore. Of course it's going to be high. Like I had to put two, two together be like, oh yeah, that's uh, what, that's literally what's going on in my body right now. You're like, right, right. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that quads. <laughs> I feel sore. I feel it. Thank you for confirming what I feel, blood work. Right. <laughs> um, so, that, so that's really interesting what you say about the regular biomarkers, because I think that we, you know, the, the other stuff, the inflammation markers in the liver enzymes and the creatine kinase, like that's, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call that essential information though, unlike something like ferritin and vitamin D, vitamin mm-hmm. B, like those are essential markers that you need to know. And you know, first thing when I work with an athlete and they tell me, you know, we're kind of going through, they're like, "Ah, something just doesn't feel right. You know, this, that, the other. I'm like, when was the last time you got your blood work done? Mm -hmm. And I've had a number of athletes come back and say, oh yeah, no, my ferritin was in the toilet. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, you'll, it, depending on the athlete, how experienced they are and like just how in tune you are with your body. Most people know, like I got winded walking up the stairs and I'm like, oh, better check my ferritin. I was like 10. Which isn't the worst I've seen, but I was like, oh, this tracks. Um, And I was like, oh, better get back on the iron supplement. You know, you just can kind of tell. And the same with recovery. Most people with super high um, creatine kinase, high cortisol, they're feeling it manifest. It's just that we usually ignore it. You know, it's that whole hustle culture thing where we're like, okay, let's just like put this, like we're just going to power through and like put on some Taylor Swift and go, you know? Um, So it is, it is very interesting. And you know, sometimes people have a hard time admitting it and they don't like what I have to say when I'm like, you should probably just take a couple weeks off running because your cortisol is like 30 and you're not going to run your way through it. So that increases your injury risk when it's that high. So yeah, again, short term versus long term view. Mm-hmm. Yep. So something I want to ask you about in your professional opinion is that whenever I talk about the importance of recovering from your big race and maybe back-to-back races aren't a great idea for every runner, like very gently just being a normal coach who's trying to prevent you from getting injured, people always chime in and say, but what about 
insert professional insane endurance athlete here, like the iron cowboy who does like a hundred iron mans back to back or some, or even somebody like Scott Jurek or, um, you know, Shan Riggs running across America, like, like these significant ultra, ultra, ultra endurance events. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, what about them? And my response is always, okay, just because they can do this, does mean, does that mean that you shouldn't recover from your marathon? Like these are two completely different discussions. Where do you come down on some people's ability to do the kinds of things that those athletes can do? Yeah. And it's just kind of like, it goes back to like, just because it's an idea that you can, doesn't mean that you should. Um, like I said, I kind of have a lot of criteria before I would encourage somebody to do that. Um, and I can tell you those people, like kind of like you were saying with Shalane, like genetically, they're probably just in a different place than you and I. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but also, I think one way is really having a serious conversation about like the work that it involves. And like you can't get to even thinking about that if you're not recovering right now. Um, and unfortunately I feel like sometimes this is a lesson that a lot of runners have to learn themselves. It's kind of like touching the hot stove. (laughs) Like if you're running yourself into the ground all the time, it's like everybody is different, right? The rise in individualized run coaching and nutrition coaching is like a big theme. So it's more of just being like, Hey, let's just look and see where you're at and your body's at and your running's at blood work, nutrition, et cetera. And then let's come up with some goals uh, based around what might fit you best. Because at the end of the day, too, this is fun. This is a hobby. (laughs) None of us are getting paid to run or exercise uh, for very long periods of time. So, like, of course, all of the training isn't going to be fun. But it's also remembering that, like, this should be a thing that fits into your lifestyle versus becoming your life. So finding... You can still find big goals that doesn't make you compare yourself to those like up, like very small percentage of runners, triathletes, etc. That's where like the 10K swim came for me. I was like, oh, this is, I know I can do this. I've been swimming for years. I can handle the training load, but this is going to be a new fun goal. And like, let me try it on a back-to-back race day because I know that I have some durability and I know my nutrition and I can take on that. So It's more about finding the things that also spark joy because like training for two back-to-back marathons is a lot to ask mentally and emotionally and physically. And if you're not in the right mindset for it, you're going to hate it. And then you're never going to want to do it again and you're going to get hurt and it's going to be sad. So like you said earlier, it's all about setting you up for success. That's really where all of it comes from. (laughs) And I really want to tease out something you just said about your 10K swim. I knew I could handle the training load. I don't think people quite understand what we're talking about, even somebody like Shalane and and the current the the list of ultra, you know, athletes I just mentioned, how much training volume they can handle on any given regular week. We're talking about 15, 20 hours of training mm-hmm. every single week. Most high volume recreational runners I know, we're doing eight eight hours, maybe 10 you know, in peak weeks for a lot, even for triathlon, 12, 15. But these are people who are running running and or doing something else for basically their full-time job. And if you have the ability to do that and you can sustain it and you're durable enough to handle it, cool, like you should do that too. But, you know, it's not like you can, you know, run 20 miles a week as your regular training volume and then go run back-to-back Ironmans. Like the mm-hmm. the the volume of an ask of these big events that you do should be proportional to the kind of training you handle regularly. Exactly. Yeah. And like when I was Ironman training, I peaked at 20 to 23 hours a week. I think I averaged 16 to 19 hours a week. And that was for like seven years, obviously with recovery and like off season in between. So like, I know I've done it. Like I've been on my bike for 14 hours in one week and I don't ever want to do that again. Um, Seven hour rides, all of that. And I'm like, Oh, Okay, like swimming, like peaking at 25,000 yards a week. I was like, it doesn't beat my body up like running or biking. And I was like, oh, I got that. So like I have that base of like, okay, I haven't been, I've taken a few years off of training at that high of a level, but like I know I can handle it and knowing 
like swimming being a lower impact exercise, like it wasn't scary for me. And I actually cut back my running to balance it out because I, my body doesn't do well at high mileage. So it's like, okay, this is how my body does the strength training adds in, you know, a little bit more and a little less running. And like, I ran a 15 K this year and I had a great time, like was like, had fun PR, like had been doing actually Holly Samuel, um, Holly field nutrition's half marathon training plan for the 15 K and I ran a 111. And most people look at me they're like, how did you do that? You usually run like nine minute miles on your Strava and you don't actually run that much. And it's like, I know the swimming gives me that aerobic cardio training. And then I took a week off after the 15K because my quads are wrecked. So, like, I knew that was going to be fine. And I was still fine for the 18-mile run the next month, like, because I took that extra recovery. So I think it's also having that mindfulness as an athlete, which I learned a lot of that from past coaches that I've worked with, like, learning what's good pain, what's bad pain, and, like, when you'll really benefit. You know, like, right now I'm in the sleep-in season, Maybe I'll swim in the morning. Maybe I'll sleep in and cuddle my dog instead. So it's just kind of like finding those different modes and like really leaning into, okay, this is peak week. I'm going to do all the things that are good for my body, hydrate, sleep, rest, to like that off-season brain where I'm like, maybe I'll just hike this weekend because that brings me joy. And like, I'm still going to get those nourishing foods. Maybe I'm going to try some new recipes that I'm going to get into my like toolbox of my staples that I can use in season and like just trying to also think about the different seasons of your whole year when it comes to training, racing and recovery. Super, super important for that mental aspect as well. And this entire conversation is not to be, not to say you can't or should not do these things. It is about if you're going to do them, are you doing them properly and well and making smart decisions that help you with your long-term goals as well as your short-term goals? If you want to run back-to-back marathons, let's try to make that happen safely. Yes, 100%. Not a naysayer. It's just that we don't want to see people broken. I have a lot of people come to me very broken, and I don't love it. Like, I would rather see people more unbroken and me have to find a different thing to do with my profession <laughs> than see a lot of broken athletes coming to me because I know how much joy sport brings. And when you're under fueled and under recovered and trying to macro count and train for an iron man, like it just doesn't work out well. And I don't want to see that because it's a hard hole to dig yourself out of. And I get, I get very frustrated with it. So, um, and I feel like there's one thing we didn't plug with this and I'm just going to make it real short. We don't go, I have to go on a tangent. But just a reminder that your fueling in your marathons will also help you recover faster. So I know there's like all the hot topics of like really pushing the carbs per hour. I think when I was did the 18 mile run, I was worried around 80 grams per hour um, for the 18 mile run. And even during the swim, I got down 200 grams of carbs in the three hours I was swimming. They had a little nutrition raft. So I did like the, I did scratch super fuel because it was just easier to do the concentrated bottle with a little extra water for that. But like, I knew I couldn't do a, a six mile swim and then try to get up and race the next day. I, I mean, I couldn't swim six miles without any fuel anyways, but like it was also mission critical in that point. So just remembering that if you do want to do this, like having that fueling plan in your race day will also help you be successful for it. And if you can push the carbs per hour, like closer to up to 90, you know, everyone's going to tolerate something different that you're only going to see the benefits in that recovery as well. Yeah. I just did in Chicago. I did 70, a little over like 72 grams per hour and it nice was awesome. Work. And I, my fuel, my fuel, it would tolerate it so well. Yes. That and even in training fuel, your long runs that helps you. It just all the fewer holes you have to dig yourself out of the more overall gains you can make in the long term. Yes. 100%. And then you'll finish and you're like, oh, I can like walk and I don't feel that bad. Carbs. <laughs> Should have worn my carb queen shirt today. I forgot to wear it. <laughs> so Stevie, tell us if somebody is listening to this and say like, all right, you know what? I want her to tell me how I can fuel my next races. How can we find, follow and work with you? Tell us, tell us what you offer. Yes. So you can always visit my website, stevielynrd.com. Um, 
you can follow me on Instagram at Stevie Lindland with only one N. Um, I will say it's probably 75% pictures of my dog with nutrition sprinkled throughout, but my dog is really cute. Plus some great adventures along the way. Um, so you can follow me on the interwebs there. And then to work with me, you can apply to work with me on my webpage or via Instagram. Right now I'm just doing one-on-one clients, um, but I am going to do a group coaching offering early next year. It's going to be geared more towards triathletes. Um, so that'll be coming, but I also have um, a course and some little smaller like one-off master classes and guides that'll be coming out in 2023 that I've been working on. Um, but if you ever have any questions about how to work with me, you can find me there. Um, and I hope you like my dog. <laughs> He's the manager of my very business pro here. dog around here. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, I have a banner behind me that says employee of the month and it is my dog every month employee of the month. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your knowledge and your wisdom with us. This is a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And happy running and racing, everyone. Yes. Have a great rest of your season. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.